Good morning. I'm Greg Boyd, the senior pastor here. For those of you who are visiting, it's good to see you all here. It's hard to believe, but Mary, do you, Mary, do you remember how uptight and restricted you were when you first came here? She used to be one of these straight-laced Baptists. Now we can't reel her in for our life. Uh, you never know what exactly she's going to say or do when she gets up front. Last service, she says, oh, so tell us how you got this body, Steve. How'd you get those massive arms? Mary, that's not the point here. Focus, Mary. You need Redlin, Mary. Redlin, yeah. I have a couple of announcements. Uh, number one, um, for those of you who are, maybe are interested in taking this course that Al Larson and I teach, this isn't part of the Theological Institute, but it's part of uh, Dynamics of Growth, and it's forming the foundation for our counseling center that we're starting. We've got a lot of new things starting, institute, counseling center, uh, and a number of things. It's, the, the vision is really starting to get fleshed out. It's exciting. Um, but um, there'll be an information session after this service at 1245 in room. I think it's 1162, but it's right outside of the, um, uh, over the, the multi-purpose room. So if you're interested in that, check it out. And there will be food provided. Mary, you might want to check it out. Okay. You know, Mary's real self-depreciating, but she's got, you know, she's got a master's degree. She says that she's not smart, but she's brilliant. So don't, don't buy her stuff. What she says about herself. Another announcement. This is just something we're kind of just happy about, bragging here a little bit. Um, we were given, Keith LeMay is in charge of all the outreach ministries, and we were given last week the Volunteer Service of the Year Award from the Catholic Charities for our work in the homeless shelter. Isn't that great? Yeah. We have, uh, a lot of you didn't know we have a ministry to the homeless shelter, and we do, and it's just starting, and I, we're going to be going forward with that. But we have individuals and uh, small groups who go over there, and they serve breakfast sometimes, they serve uh, lunch sometimes, they fellowship with the people that are there. In a few cases, they've helped them try to find housing and things of that sort. And, you know, we, we just don't want to be talking about the kingdom, we want to be demonstrating it. Amen? And that's what it's about. Maybe, you know, some people would say, well, gosh, you know, you, you don't know, your theology doesn't line up with, with Catholicism. How can you be working with Catholic charities? And you see, if you're a homeless person, you really don't care, do you? And, and uh, those are the kind of things we say, you know what, if you're for what we're for, let's join our forces together, let's work together. That's what we mean by networking the body of, of Christ, acting like a team. Praise God. And, uh, and going forward with the unity of the vision to see the kingdom of God uh, advance. Um, one other thing is this. You might want to consider, you can see we're fairly full here. We were full first service. Um, we have a service on Saturday night that's only about half full, and parking's no problem. So um, if uh, think about, pray about the possibility of, of making that your, your service, uh, if uh, you can possibly do that. We've been uh, talking about the last several months about getting on the same page. We really believe, we really sense that. If Woodland Hills Church is, is to do all the things that, that the Lord is raising us up to do, it's going to require us all being on the same page. Uh, we've talked about the principle of prayer and uh, um, how foundational that is. We're laying foundational principles here in this series. We talked several weeks ago about racial reconciliation and diversity in the body of Christ. And we showed there that uh, this is not a peripheral issue in the Bible. It's a central issue in the Bible, so it's a central issue for Woodland Hills Church. It's foundational. And now we're talking about the church itself. I'm going to be doing a, a several-week or several-months series. We'll see how the Spirit leads. On the nature of the church. And what I'm asking here is this. What are we doing here? What is this about? What are we gathered here for? What are we supposed to be uh, doing? How will we know if we're doing it well or if we're not doing it well? What is the church supposed to be about? 
And to get at that point, I've been talking about the myth, some myths that uh, people have about church. I think it's going to be about ten myths of the church, maybe a little more, a little bit less, we'll see. But I'm, I'm just confronting these. Last week we confronted myth number one, a myth that, that some people, a misconception that some people have about the church, and it's this, that the church exists to make your life a little sweeter, a little nicer, a little better. And what we showed last week is this, that the, the church is not there to just sweeten up our life a little bit. No one in the early church, in the New Testament church, ever would have thought that the purpose of the church is to make our life a little better. And in the first century, when you signed up and you, you committed yourself to Jesus Christ and joined the church, uh, your life for sure wasn't going to be a little bit sweeter. Your life expectancy was about cut in half because they were putting Christians to death. What they understood and what we need to understand is this. The church is not about improving our little earthly life right here and right now a little bit, though that often happens. But what the church is to do is not to improve our earthly life, but to give us a life that's better than earthly life. Amen? And his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, we are to uh, introduce people to and grow people into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is better than life itself. So whether things are going well or whether things are going bad, whether things are improving or whether things are not improving, whether you're healthy or whether you're sick, whatever, yeah, your eyes are on Jesus Christ and it really becomes almost inconsequential. Uh, when you lose your life, you find it. When you try to grab your life and find your life, you lose it. And so the church is to be composed of those who are in a free-fall relationship uh, where they've sold out and, uh, and, and are clinging to Jesus Christ as their one source of life. This morning I want to confront myth number two and myth number three, though I don't think I'll get to myth number three very much. But here's what they are. Myth number two is that the church is a building. Myth number three is out of which... Employed religious professionals, that's the reverends, the ministers, the fathers, or whoever, religious professionals, do the work of ministry. Myth number three. Let me uh, start with a word of prayer. And in fact, I'd like to have uh, some people in the congregation praying. Specifically here, uh, both Norm and I have got throat problems this morning, allergies and colds and whatnot. So we need to be praying for it for physically. We need to be praying that any kind of block in the spiritual realm that would keep us from uh, experiencing the full dimension of God's power here would be just done away with. So okay, could I get about a couple dozen people over here who will be uh, intercessors for this message? Wonderful. In the middle, a couple dozen people. Gotcha. Over here, a couple dozen people to be praying. Okay. You can listen to the message, but be interceding. Be praying that God's word would, be, would come forth boldly. And then during the worship service, be praying that the Spirit of God would be flowing in our midst. So let's pray. Father... In Jesus' name, God, we take this message, Lord, and the worship time that's going to come afterwards, Lord, and we submit them to you. And we ask, God, that your will would be done. Have your way here, Lord. We know, Lord, that it's not by our might or by our power, but by your Spirit that mountains are removed, Lord God, that the Spirit of God goes forward and that the kingdom of God is built. So, Holy Spirit, flood this place right now, Lord. Pack it in, Lord. Be dense here, Lord. God, bulldoze over the strongholds of, res of defense in our minds and in our hearts, Lord God, that would keep us from receiving the full power of your word and the full dimension of worship, Lord. Let it be done. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. It's a real traditional view with a long history. People tend to associate the church with a building. We're going to church, you might have said this morning. We're going to go to church. And I'm not saying that's wrong, as long as you understand what you're saying. But what we often mean is that we're going to a building, and the building is called the church. Maybe you're driving around and you say, oh, what a nice church that is. And you mean by that it's got a nice steeple and some stained glass windows or whatever. 
So you think of the church as a building. We're, we're dressing up to go to church. Church is something that you do on Sunday morning, and you stop doing it when you go home. This is a, a very common view. We see uh, these religious buildings, these churches as owned by different denominations. So there's a Lutheran church and a Baptist church and a Catholic church and a Pentecostal church. And we mean by that, there's a religious building owned by the Baptists. There's a religious building owned by the Pentecostals or the Catholics or the Lutherans. The church is identified with a building. And very often it's, it's uh, assumed that uh, that's sort of where the, the ministers, the, the reverends, the pastors do the work of the ministry. You know, that's kind of where they're housed. And this idea that the, the pastors are those who are a little bit closer to God than everybody else, a little bit more spiritual than everybody else. And um, that's why when we go to uh, public gatherings, they'll often say, Reverend, would you lead us in prayer? And the idea here is that we know how to pray better than anybody else, or at least God listens to our prayer better than anybody else. A long tradition goes behind this, and it, it's damaging. Here's a little history behind this conception, okay? Just a real quick history here. In the first century, when the Lord came into this world, was incarnated as Jesus Christ, there were pagan religions all over the place, and almost all of these pagan religions had temples dedicated to certain gods. And they tried to make these temples very impressive and very ornate in honor to their god. In fact, there was, as there is today, sometimes a little bit of a competition as to who had the best temple, and that was sort of seen as a proof that their deity was the true deity. And in these temples, they would have a, usually a priesthood, certain religious professionals whose job it was to mediate God's presence to the people, and they did the religious duties, and they said the religious prayers and, and things of that sort. It was very common in the first century. In fact, it's been common throughout history. In the early church, what you need to know is this. They didn't have temples, and they didn't have a priesthood or a special ministerial class. They were initially mostly an underground movement, like the church in China is today. Uh, they, were, they were very shortly after the birth of the church persecuted, and so they couldn't meet in public places. They would meet in each other's households. There wasn't any special building that was called the church. Not only that, but they didn't have a special ministerial class. They would, we find in the New Testament, sometimes pool their resources together to free somebody up to do ministry full-time so they wouldn't have to be doing an outside job. But these people weren't regarded as being more righteous or spiritual than other people. It's just that they had a gift that the church could use for the building up of the church. So they freed them to do that full time. But there wasn't any kind of special uh, class there. This tradition, you see, what happened was, was uh, by the 3rd, 4th century, Christianity became legalized. In 312, with the Edict of Milan, with Constantine, it became legalized. Within about 100 years, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then it became institutional, and what the early church began to do was to imitate the pagan religions that were around there. A lot of pagans were coming into the church, they brought their own ideas, and the church, to a large degree, got paganized. So we decided to build special religious buildings that would, that would in a special way, sort of reflect the glory of God. And, and uh, people began to um, uh, have this, this uh, uh, special ministerial class that would do the religious deeds. And then more and more, the people became spectators rather than participants in the church. There are few things, I believe, in the church tradition that are as damaging to the truth of the gospel as, as this. This is a myth, a misconception about what the church is supposed to be. On the one hand, it, what it does is it, 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 it distinguishes, it divorces the individual from the church. The church is a building, the church is out there, I'm here, the church is there, and I may go to church and I come home from church, but I am not the church. 
So the most you can do is be an occasional participant, an occasional spectator, but there's a lack of ownership on the part of individual Christians about what the church does because it's seen as being over there. Not only that, but because of this ministerial class, uh, believers increasingly came to rely on the professionals to do the religious duties rather than doing them themselves. And the Christian life gets compartmentalized. Increasingly, people see that the, the religious stuff is, is boxed in this house. So you go to church and you come out of church, but you don't do church when you're not in the building, you see? And so the, it's sort of like you put on your religion once a week, you put on your spirituality once a week, you put on your Jesus face once a week, you put on your Jesus clothes once a week, Whereas the Bible tells us to go out into the world and to sanctify the world, now it all gets boxed up in this little building. It's very, very damaging. What I want to do is confront this head on and blow it apart. Here's a statement that uh, I think reflects the New Testament's conception of the church. I'm going to give this and I'm going to break it down into three parts. The church consists of all true believers who are covenanted together in in, in fellowship for the purpose of growing as one and working with God to carry out His plan for the world. That is, I think, a real succinct definition of what the, the church is in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to break it down into several pieces. First of all, number one, the church consists of all true believers. The very definition of the church, the word in Greek is ekklesia. The very definition can't mean a building. It can't. Ekklesia means called out ones. Literally, the, gather, the gathering of the elect, the, the called out ones, those who have been called. It refers to a group of people, not to a building. And if you read the New Testament carefully and look at all the references to the church, it's unmistakable. It's, it's very clear. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. In Acts chapter 11, verse 22, it says that news came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, what do you do with that if you think that the church is a building? Picture it. Nice church. Look at those nice ears on the side of that church. That's, that's... But see, the, the people with the ears are the people. The church is not a building. The church is the people who've got ears. And so they heard the, the, this news. In 1 Corinthians 16, it says this. The churches of Asia send greetings. Buildings don't send greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, no, Priscilla, together with the church in their house, greet you warmly in the Lord. Now look at The church is in the house. The church is not the building. The church is what meets in the building. You see? So they met in, in, in the first century, they, they'd meet in the houses of people. The church in the house of the church is not a building. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those... And see, now Paul's going to repeat himself. He's going to expound upon what he means. To the church that's at Corinth. Here's what I mean. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The church consists of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Who are called to be saints. The church is the called out ones, those who are called to be saints. Agio in Greek, it literally means those who are set apart. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church consists of all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a building. The church is a people. It's an organic reality that God has created through His death and resurrection and through the working of the Spirit. It's not at all a building, and it's important that we realize this. Now, what is the qualification? What, what, what enables a person to belong to the church, to be a part of this group that is called the church? The New Testament consistently gives us one foundational qualification. What makes you a called-out one? 
The New Testament is, is very straightforward and very simple. It is your faith, your trust, and your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith, your trust, your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, that and that alone. If you have that, then you are a part of the church, the ecclesia. You're one of the called out ones. Churches very frequently put up a lot of hoops that people need to jump through to become members of the church. And some of them are rather unfortunate. I had a relative, distant relative, who decided she needed some religion. She didn't really believe in God and, and didn't believe in Jesus, but she was feeling empty and wanted to belong to something. So she looked around her neighborhood, and there was a church on the corner. So she went to this church on the corner, and she said, I think I'd like to join your church. And the pastor there said, fine, you know, that, that's wonderful, and set up an interview thing. And during this interview time, the first question he asked was this. Well, if you want to become a member of the church, all members are, are, are expected to pledge a certain amount to the, to the church, to some financial uh, you know, contribution. What can we expect of you to give in this next year? Ick. And what was really icky is that that didn't surprise her. She assumed, oh, yeah, now, of course, that's the first question that churches are interested in. But see, in the New Testament, you don't find people asking that question when it comes to deciding whether or not you're a member of the body of Christ. The only question they're interested in is this. Are you a called out one? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to his offer of salvation? Do you remember the parable that was told in Matthew 22 about the invitation of the king? There's a king who had a son who was getting married, so he wanted to have a great banquet. And so he sent out an invitation to all of his dignitary friends, all of those who kings kind of hobnob with. But see, they're important people, they're dignitaries, and so they're kind of busy, they've got other things going on and whatnot. So they all, they, they all decline, they say, no, I'm not going to, I just can't do that. So then the king says, okay, tell you what, you go out into the highways, into the byways, into the main streets, into the commoner streets, and you invite whoever you see there. You invite the dregs of society. You invite the outcasts. You invite the commoners, those who normally aren't ever invited to a wedding banquet. And you say, if you want to come to this banquet, you can come to this banquet. Whosoever will can come to this banquet. The only thing, the only requirement, the only qualification of coming to this banquet is that you say yes to the invitation. Jesus then, then, then finishes off this parable by, by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, some people get this idea that, that God just sort of picks and chooses uh, who will be in the church. Okay, I want you, 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 and you, and the rest of you forget it. And so he individually selects. I just choose you guys. But in the parable, you see, the ones, the many refers to the, the, the first invitation, and those are the ones who said no. The others re, uh, refer to those who said yes. What makes you a called out one, what makes you one whom God has chosen, is that you've said yes to his choosing you. You following this? He chooses you. You say yes. Now, you are a chosen one. And the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God, the beautiful thing about this banquet, is that if you say yes, if, if it's in your heart, then nothing else really matters. That's the point of this parable. God doesn't put a lot of other qualifications, a lot of ifs, ands, or buts in the way for you becoming a part of the ecclesia. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're invited to the banquet. You're invited to come and feast on the goodness of God, on, on, the, on the love of God, amen, on the grace of God. Whosoever will can come and enjoy the presence of God and be transformed by the power of God, praise God. There's no other qualification that is there. In terms of coming to the church, you need to know this. When you say yes, you are now no longer a commoner. You are a guest of the Most High God. You are a guest of the King. In fact, you are a child of the King, praise God. And you can sit at the banquet now for all eternity. You're robed in righteousness, the Bible says. 
You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Amen. You are filled with His Holy Spirit. Amen. You are showered with blessings. Amen. You are Your sins are cast away from You as far as the east is from the west. Amen. You are a child of the Most High God. And if God says yes to you, how dare any church say no to you? You're part of His body. You're part of His elect. You're part of the banquet table. Amen. I just don't care. It doesn't matter now. What's going on in the past, whether you're loose living in the past or your addictions in the past or your abortion in the past or the divorce in the past or the way you railed against God in the past or the mistakes that you've made in the past. If God says yes to you, then the people of God say yes to you and we invite you to the banquet, Supper of the Lamb. Praise God. And that's what church is. We're having a celebration. You're feasting on the Lord God. And whoever, whosoever will is a part of that. That's what the body of Christ is about. But with that also comes an incredible responsibility. That's the invitation. And now you come. But here's, here's the responsibility and the wonderful opportunity. It means this. You are the church. The church is not there or there or there. You are the church. There ain't no church but us. All right? The church is the community of believers. There's no church apart from that. The community of believers don't go to church. They are the church. And if you're part of the community of believers, that means you are the church. It means if God's going to do anything through the church, he, that includes you. You're part of what God works through. And when we pass the buck, when we, when we push off that responsibility, we're just denying the very defin, the definition of the church. What it means here is this. Land this. Holy Spirit, burn this into our psyche. By definition, by definition, if you are a believer and you're part of the church, you can't be a spectator of the church. You following this? You're part of the church. You're part of that organism. Unbelievers can be spectators of the church, but a believer, by definition, is part of the church. So what it means here is this, land this. Don't be a spectator of the church worshiping. You are the church that's supposed to be worshiping. Start worshiping. Amen? Don't be a spectator of the church as it does ministry, as though you're different from that. If you're a believer, you are the church that's called to do ministry. Don't be a spectator of, of children's ministry. Participate in children's ministry. Don't be a spectator of youth ministry. Participate in youth ministry. Don't be a spectator of the church sacrificing to see the kingdom of God go forward. You are the church. You are the us. Join in. Jump in. Become a part of it. That's what God's called you to do. There's no church other than us. You are the church, so by definition... We can't be spectators of this. God calls us to be participants. And each of us has a role to play. Now, you can't do all those things I just mentioned or the other 197 ministries we've got going on there. Read the bulletin sometimes. There's so many ministries going on here. We, you can't do all of that, which is why God has us doing it together. Because together we can do a whole lot more than we can do individually. But if each one does their part, and believer, you've got to know this, you've got a role to play, a vital role to play in the body of Christ. The Lord needs you to step up and play that role if it's going to get done. But as each of us does our role, the work of the whole gets done, praise God. But there's no passing the buck here. The buck stops with us. The church is a community of all true believers who are called together, to be bound together, to work to see the kingdom of God go forward. That's the very definition of the church. It says this in John 14. I've got to realize this. You, the church is the body of Christ. It means that, think about this, you are his hands, you're his body. You are his nose, you're his body. You, know, you are his feet, you're his body. Jesus says this in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. 
This is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him because He abides with you and He will be in you. Now, Jesus, you can't separate the Holy Spirit from Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So Jesus, the physical Jesus, is, is saying, I'm with you, but pretty soon I'm going to be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. Believer, you've got to know this. When you become a believer, when you say yes to this invitation to, be, to, to join the banquet, one of the first things you feast on is this. The Holy Spirit comes and resides within you, and the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus wants to continue his ministry, the same ministry he had while he was incarnate here in his body. He continues that through the church. The church is called his body because it is, in a very literal way, his second body. His first body was his incarnate body in the first century, five foot five and 130 pounds or whatever. You know, I don't know what, how much he weighed, but you get the point. That was his body. His goal was then to take over, as it were, other people's bodies and make that his body, a global body, so we can do a whole lot more ministry. When you become a believer, Jesus lives inside of you and now wants to work through you to continue the work of his body. You are his hands, you are his feet, you are his knees, you are every part of the body that he needs to carry out his, 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 his work. We are the skin of Jesus Christ to the world. Are you following me on this? The skin of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ to the world. And so it's vital that we understand that it's on us to see his work carried out in this world. What would have happened if Jesus in his first body, as it were, his incarnate body, if, if, if part of his body didn't cooperate with him when he was doing ministry? You know, what if he had spectators in his initial physical body? So he's going to go over and heal somebody, but his foot decides to be a spectator rather than a participant. So he, all of a sudden it's like, like this. And he says, hey, foot! You know, when you get in line here, we've got to do some ministry. And the foot says, oh, I just, you know, I'm just visiting here. I, I just like to spectate. See, or he goes to lay hands on somebody, but the, the arm won't work. You know, I'm going to heal you. This is a great testimony here. You see, it just won't work having a, having a, a lame Jesus hobbling around because his body won't cooperate, him, cooperate with him. He needs his body to do the work of the, uh, of the kingdom. Well, it's just as true today as it was in the first century. We are His body. We are the feet. We are the hands. And He needs us. He's living inside of us to see His work done in this world. The sad thing is that, to a large degree, the, the contemporary Jesus who works through the church is to some degree a crippled Jesus. Why? Not because He's crippled, but because the body of Christ won't, won't own up to the reality that they are the ones through whom He wants to use, the body that He wants to use to minister to this world. All of us have a role to play in the body of Christ, the hand, the foot, the eyes, or whatever. And it's so crucial that we own up to that. His Spirit resides within us. You can either follow it, yield to it, or quench it. I encourage you to follow the Lord and join in. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant in the body of Christ. Number two, the church consists of all true believers who are covenanted together in fellowship. It says this in Acts chapter 2. There's a lot of verses I could appeal to for this one. But it says this in Acts chapter 2. The new believers, that is the, the people who were saved on the day of Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves. That means they were committed. This was, this was their uh, you know, a central thing for them. It wasn't optional. They, could, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's part of the reason why we're having this uh, Bible Institute. It's for people to learn the apostles' teaching, to, to grow in that. But note this, and to fellowship. 
They devoted themselves to fellowship. It wasn't an option for them. This is part of what it meant to be in the body of Christ. They devoted themselves to being together. They made a commitment to be together. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They took care of one another. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread and things of that sort. They'd meet in large groups like this in the temple initially, but they also meet in, in, in house churches, in homes, uh, or in small groups. And that's how the, the work got done. I want us to note here and chew on a little bit this whole idea of how central fellowship was, getting together was, in the, in the, in the first century. Today, a lot of believers see it as optional. Do I feel like going to church? Do I feel like being in a small group? Do I, you know, eh, I guess maybe today I will. But in the, in, the, in the first century, it was very, very different. Part of the very definition of the church, the ecclesia, the ones who are called out, is their togetherness. Everybody say togetherness. It's the togetherness of the church that makes it a church, and it's the togetherness of the body that makes it a body. You know what? If some wacko here decides to capture me after the service and get a chainsaw out and dismember me, I'm not going to have a body. That's profound, isn't it? And the reason I'm not going to have a body is because my body is constituted by the togetherness of my limbs. Following this? The body needs to be together if it's going to be a body. That's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. Part of the definition, you're called out to be together. This is the community aspect of the body of Christ is, is a central part of the body of Christ. It's a central part of the church, and it is what glorifies God. Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17. Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. I pray that he's saying that the triune love of God would be replicated and mirrored in them. Why? He says it in John 17. So the world may know that you have sent me. We glorify God. We reflect something of his social loving nature when we are together, when we're doing ministry together. We glorify God when we worship together. We glorify God when we sacrifice together. We glorify God when we engage in service together. We we glorify God when we take care of one another. And to the extent that we don't do that, we're not glorifying God. God is a social God, and he just structured into creation that relationships glorify him because he's a relational God. The church needs to be together. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Get together, spend time together, break bread together, fellowship together, work together, minister together, pull your resources together. The togetherness of the church is part of the very definition of the church. There's also a big practical reason why this is important. The practical reason is simply this. You can do a whole lot more for the kingdom of God when you're joined up with other people than you can possibly do alone. You know, the life and here's the thing. I, it's got to be, if you understand what's going on in this world, this, one of the central things in your life should be this, this ambition, uh, that when you die and you go before the throne, the Lord, you won't just have like, gotten saved by grace. That, that Praise God for that. That's wonderful. But you, but you want the Lord to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? Well done, thou good and faithful. I want that. The Bible even talks about rewards that, 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 that accrue to you on the basis of what you did with grace. You're saved by grace. But the question is, what do you do with that? Well, here's the thing. We can do a whole lot more together than we can do, do individually. So if we're going to maximize our potential for the kingdom and maximize our eternal reward with God, we need each other to do it. I can't possibly get the well-done, good, and faithful servant as much on me alone as I can do if you're with me on this. So also, you need me if you're going to maximize your potential, and we need each other if we're going to maximize our potential. What we do together comes back on all of us. And what we can do together is a million times more than what we can do alone. You've got a lot of lone rangers in, 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 in this culture. You know, the bedside Baptists. 
who would just sort of have a me and Jesus personal relationship and we don't need that institutional church and, and all of that. Boy, there's problems there. There's imperfect people there, you know, and, and they got squabbles there. And, and you know, and then you got Besides, I like to sleep in on Sunday morning. And it, 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 it's all over the place. But see, here's the thing. Lone Ranger Christians never accomplish that much for God. Uh, they can do a little good here and there, I suppose, but you know what? They're, they're just, because they're not part of God's design, they're not part of a body of Christ, they're not committed in the body of Christ, uh, they're missing it. They're missing it. it. Lone Ranger Christians can't possibly experience the joy and the profound presence and the growth that comes uh, when we worship together as a body. Lone Ranger Christians... They don't minister to, to 600 uh, children a week and 200 young people. But we together can do that, you see, by pooling our resources together. Young, Lone Ranger Christians, they don't see over 400 people saved in, in, in a span of, of, of six months. But we together have seen that here at Woodland Hills Church. In the last six months, we've had over 400 people make decisions for Jesus Christ. And see, amen, praise God for that. The bedside Baptist, that comes back on all the people who have ever worked towards that end, who have ever prayed towards that end, who have ever sacrificed towards that end. And you miss that whole thing if you're a lone ranger Christian. So it is with all the work of, of the kingdom. We join together to see the work of God go forward in a way, collectively, that could never go individually. I want to encourage you to really take seriously God's call to covenant with the body of Christ. To, to, to become a covenant partner if you're part of Woodland Hills Church, to make that commitment. We Americans are hesitant to make any kind of commitment, but it's very, very biblical. In fact, it's essential to commit to working out your ministry in, in the context of the whole. If, if Woodland Hills isn't your church, we're fine with that. But you need to belong, be associated with, and be committed to another body of Christ. By God's design, that's how the kingdom of God goes forward. Amen, amen, amen. Number three, the church consists of all true believers who are covenanted, covenanted together in fellowship, look at this, for the purpose of growing as one and working with God to carry out His plan for the world. Why do we get together? What are we doing here? See, there's just a lot of mythological thinking going on about the church. A lot of people think that really, you know, yeah, you use spiritual language, but what you're really trying to do is impress people. You want to have a really slick sermon, uh, slick announcements like we had today, where everything just goes just flows so smoothly, uh, and and you want to have really good music because you see you, you want as many people to come to your church rather than some other church, you know. So you want to you want to give them the most of what they're looking for, and and you want to make it as funny as possible and as nice as possible and as sweet as possible and yada 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 yada. I can't tell you how little interested we are in doing any of that. <laughs> Uh, see, it's, it's just an empty thing. You could, you could have a good program, good show, but if you're not carrying out the Lord's mandate on you, it's all meaningless. Religious maybe, but meaningless. Nice, but meaningless. What matters is that we are carrying out the purpose that God called us together to carry out. That's the only criteria by which we stand or fall. Now, what is this purpose? Jesus hammered it. Slugged it out of the park in Matthew chapter 16. He's landed. Here's the central purpose of the church. And he says, we understand it here at Woodland Hills Church. He says this in Matthew 16. He says, you are Peter. In Greek it means little rock. But upon this boulder, this big rock, and he's referring there to, to, the, to Peter's confession of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Upon this big rock I will build my church. Now note there, Jesus is going to build his church. 
Greg doesn't build a church. Norm doesn't build a church. Mary doesn't build a church. Jesus builds the church. But what's the body through which he builds the church? It's you and it's me. Jesus is building it, but he, use our, he uses our gifts to build it. We're the skin that he's wearing, as it were. Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock. Now, look at, look at this. This is the first mention of the church in the Bible. This is the first time that the word church has ever been, been mentioned. And here Jesus gives the mandate. This is the only thing you need to be worried about. He says, and the gates of Hades, which is this another word for Satan's kingdom, the gates of Hades will not prevail against you. You are going to be, as I build my church, if my body cooperates here, as I build my church, you are going to be an unstoppable force. You are going to bulldoze over demonic strongholds. Uh, you are going to be advancing the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell, first thing you've got to know about the church is this. You're going to be storming the gates of hell, and the gates of hell can't possibly stand up to you. And then he tells us how we do that. He says, well, whatever you, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So he's entrusting us with this. So whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. In other words, we are the ones through whom the Lord works to see the Father's will applied on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus in his first body was all about spreading the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. He wants to win back the world, take back the world that rightfully belongs to his Father. He wants to take it back from the enemy. He wants to free human beings to be the viceroys, the stewards of the earth that he originally called them to be. And then have God glorified by once again being Lord of the whole earth. The world is in bondage. Jesus dealt a death blow to the enemy through his death and resurrection. Just, just The enemy's been bleeding to death since the first century. Did you know that? And his doom is sure. The victory is ensured. But the Lord then says, you know what? I want my second body, the church, the called out ones, to carry on this work, to apply the victory that I have won. And that's why we exist. That's what we're here for. It's got nothing to do with entertainment. It's got nothing to do with being cute or being slick or being fancy. It's got everything to do with obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. To see His kingdom go forward. To see the walls that resist God torn down. To raise up soldiers, passionate warriors who are sold out in, in, in seeing God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're all about, the target is this. We bind and we loose. We bind and we loose. We bind whatever doesn't agree with God, and we unleash everything that does agree with God. That's why we exist. That's a central purpose. That's why we get together. We glorify God by seeing His will done on earth as it is in heaven. We bind up demonic powers, and we unleash the power of God. Somebody say amen. And that's what it's all about. We bind up sickness, and we release the power of God towards healing. Amen? We bind up strongholds and we release truth. We bind up oppression and we set captives free, praise God. We bind up hatred and we release the love of God. Amen. We, we bind up despair and we release the hope of God, praise God. We, we bind up injustice and we bring the justice of God. We bind up anxiety and we bring the peace of God. Hallelujah. We bind up lies in people's minds and lies in people's hearts and we let the Word of God saturate them and make them whole and renew their minds. It's, we're all about binding. We're all about loosing. We bind up broken minds and we unleash healthy minds. We bind up broken hearts and we unleash healthy hearts. We bind up broken families we unleash healthy families, praise God. We bind up apathetic believers and we make passionate believers for Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's the bullseye. We have a lot of fun along the way, but the purpose isn't the fun. The purpose is the bullseye. We party good, you know, and, and, and we can be funny sometimes. We want to have as good ministries and, and nice programs as we can, but the purpose isn't the ministries or the programs. The purpose is the bullseye. That's the vision. We exist to be the body of Christ who carries out His will on earth as it is in heaven. Everything we do, everything we do, 
And we're doing a lot of stuff here. But it's all towards that one focused end. We have a children's ministry because we want to see God's will done on, uh, uh, in, in children's lives. Amen? We have a youth ministry because we want to see uh, 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 young people know the Lord. We want to see God's will done for young people. We're going to be next year working towards getting a youth center. Why? Because we can get thousands of kids off the street and get them saved through a youth center. We want to see God's will done with young people. Amen. We want to see God's will done in people's, in people's lives, in adults' lives. That's why we're having this Bible Institute. We want to see God's will being carried out in people's minds and get them freed from strongholds that they have. That's why we're having a counseling clinic. We want to see God's, people, God's will done in people's bodies. That's why we're having a healing service. It's going to be being transferred over to Sunday night. A healing service where we just center in and, and see God's will done there. And so also for all other areas. We want to see God's will done for the homeless shelter. That's why we've got a homeless ministry going on there. We want to see God's will done for the neighborhood. That's why we have this random acts of kindness. And so on and so on and so on and so on. Let me ask you this question. Now close with this. Are you being the body? Are you being the body of Christ? You are the body of Christ, believer. I'm talking to believers here. You are the body of Christ. Uh, and the Lord, there, to that degree, is relying on you to be the, hood, the, the foot or the eye or the ear or whatever role. You've got a beautiful role to play in the kingdom. It is the meaning of your life. This is the stuff that you do that lasts for eternity. And when you participate in the whole, the, what the whole accomplish, accomplishes comes back on you throughout eternity. Are you being the body of Christ or have you bought the myth that you're just a spectator? And I would pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit right now, your mind and heart would be opened up as He pulls you into being a fully committed, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, working in conjunction with the, the, the community of God's people to see His will done on earth as it is in heaven. Praise God. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Nothing but that. It's so simple, so straightforward. Let it cook on you. Let it just simmer there. We're going to go into a time of worship here. And uh, it could be, as the worship team comes up here, it could be that you're sitting here and, and right now that it's possible. In fact, I bet, I bet there's at least a lot of people here who are uh, right now thinking, you know what, gosh, I, I don't know if I can worship God. You just hit me between the eyes. Maybe you've been a floater. Maybe you've been a church shopper, an addict to church shopping. Maybe you've never committed yourself to anything bigger than yourself. You know, a lot of American Christians are just like that. And so right now, you're just getting hit. So you don't feel like worshiping God. I'm going to challenge you with this. We don't worship God because we've arrived. Because none of us have arrived. We worship God because He's God. When you enter into worship, that's not a testimony about how holy you are. Some people think that it's only the righteous people that can raise their hands and can really get into it. No way. We don't worship God. Worship isn't a testimony to how righteous we are. It's a testimony to how righteous God is. Amen. And we don't worship God because we're holy. We worship God because He's holy. Amen. And He's worthy of it. And what you find is this. See, as you worship God, be open to God, be abandoned, be focused on Him, push out everything else that could possibly distract you, sell out and worshiping Him. And what you do when you do that is, is you are allowing a space for the Holy Spirit to begin to work in your life. Don't put the cart before the horse. We don't worship God because we've arrived. We worship God because He's God. And when we do that, it helps us arrive. You see, you leave different than you came when you're sold out in worship. God begins to work on your heart. So I encourage you to have an open heart and a focused mind as we here together are going to lift up God and praise His name and with passion and glory just exalt the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who lives within us and spans the space of the universe, praise God, because He is worthy. We'll start. 
the way we often start with the ushers come forward. We worship God with, with, our, with our offering. Uh, we, this is part of our pooling our resources together. We sacrificially give so that we can together do more than we could ever do alone. And so we take up an offering here. Uh, it's, it's an act of worship as we give back to God a portion of what he's blessed us with. And so we'll worship God with this. And then as, uh, uh, when the ushers are completed, normal, will have us stand. Let me pray. Father, I pray, God, that you'd anoint uh, this, this time of worship here, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be thick here. I pray, Lord, for Norm's throat, Lord. Uh, touch his throat, Lord God. Give him the ability to lead us with passion. Uh, whether he can hit a note or not, it doesn't matter. Use him, Lord God, and the entire worship team, Lord God. And, Father, I pray that you draw us in, not to be spectators of worship, but rather, God, worshipers. Worship those who participate in it with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our body, and with all of our soul, and be glorified in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.